up to 200 Ellie's we get in the dry season on a daily basis. They just disappear and we don't know where they go. He's probably the biggest male in Kana, uh, squaring off with a tiger called T24. They'd square off on their hind legs, swiping at each other, punching in the air, and all this happened over the first week of January, day after day. We pretended we didn't see the taper and we just kept going. And the taper pretended to not see us and stood there. Hi, and welcome to the Wildlife and Wilderness Travel and Safari Show, the world's first and only podcast on wildlife safaris worldwide and sustainable tourism to our planet's wild places. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Banner, biologist and director of the travel company Wildlife and Wilderness, providing high quality holiday experiences to thousands of clients for almost 25 years. We are passionate about all things travel in the natural world, safaris, wildlife travel, wilderness adventures and more. And what better way to bring this to you than a roundup of what is happening around the world in some of its great destinations. We plan this to be a monthly update on exciting wildlife sightings and happenings, how the seasons are changing and life in national parks and wild places across the planet. All brought to you directly by our colleagues on the ground in these places. First hand knowledge and news straight to you from Wildlife and Wilderness. If you're planning your future travels, do check out our website at wildlifewilderness.com or contact us via podcasts at wildlifewilderness.com. Let's get started and in no particular order, let's meet our guests this month. First up is Tyrone speaking to us from Zambia. Yeah, I'm Tyrone McKeith and um, I'm half of Jeffrey McKeith Safaris. And um, yeah, we're a, I, I keep saying we're a relatively new company, but we've actually been going for 10 years now. Um, and yeah, generally based in the Kafui National Park, although we, we do a few bits and bobs outside of, of the Kafui, namely in the Lua Plains. Um, but uh, yeah, we've got two small bush camps um, in the northern part of the Kafui. Of course, the Kafui is a massive park. And so, yes, myself and Phil. Could you just perhaps tell us just how big Kafui is? Yeah, Kafui is, um, it's often quoted, I think, as the fifth largest national park in the world. It's 22,500 square kilometers, about the size of Wales. Everything's usually related to the size of Wales, but it, yeah, it is about the same size as Wales. So, um, yeah, a big, vast, vast area. Um, uh, yeah, and, and we've got two camps in, in two very small areas of that. So that's where we are. Um, and yeah, uh, currently we're... It's the, it's the end of the rainy season, so we're in and out of camp trying to get things ready for the season ahead. Of course, uh, we don't know what this year will hold with, with, with coronavirus um, on everyone's minds and, and everything, but it doesn't stop us having to still crack on with the work and we're busy redoing the rooms and, and aside to the tourism side of things that we do, we also support and, and actually actively run a, a, a conservation project called Musakesi Conservation. And of course, um, um, anti-poaching works never stop, so... We're in and out of the bush regardless, um, um, even with the roads completely underwater and, and full of black cotton soil as they are. So, uh, yeah, although it's the off-season, um, I think people think we play golf or do something this time of year. But um, no, we, uh, this, is when, this is when the hard work really is and we're fixing cars and we're doing some marketing and, and, and things like that. Yeah. Can you tell me what the last season's been like or anything recent been happening around the area? And describe the area that you're based in, um, particularly for Musakese Camp. Yeah, the, the season gone was was a, was a really good year, really great year for wildlife, um, which is always which is always good. I mean, I, I say that in context because the Musakesi area before we moved in there had never had tourism in it ever, and I'm talking about an area of two and a half thousand square kilometres. So um, uh, yeah, and the park was proclaimed in the '60s. So when we first turned up in the area, we could see signs and tracks in the roads and droppings of various uh, different species of wildlife. But um, it, it's only taken. I would say the last two or three years for us to really see the fruits of our sort of labor and, and see wildlife settle down and, and increase in number. 
And so this, the season just gone, the 2019 season was fantastic. And if you talk of species specifically, um, our leopard sightings uh, were through the roof. Of course, Zambia is well known for being a great place to view leopard, but uh, the Kafui less so than the Luangwa and the Zambezi. But we were right up there um, with, our, with our big cat sightings. Of course, the Kafui is well, well, if you've known of it, if you've heard of it, it's well known for its diversity, but maybe not, people don't quite realize that you're going to see such a lot of the big, more glamorous stuff as well. So it's, it was a very good year last year for sightings of Muskesi. Um, currently this year, uh, currently this year, of course, we've only just just been able to slowly start to get in and out through the swampy roads. And luckily, my colleague Phil has a small aircraft, so we're able to fly into an all-weather strip and check things out. But regardless, the wildlife's still very much there, and, and, uh, and we've got some satellite collared um, research animals um, on, in the Musakesi region, uh, specifically a cheetah um, and and a, and a lion, and, and and both of those have been in the vicinity of camp for the last month or so. So there's definitely very much around, but it's tough to get around and see it physically because the roads are inundated, and we've got no vehicles in there at the moment. So if the roads are underwater, how are the animals doing out there then at this time of the year? The cheetahs, in particular, they need to be able to run it for a good stretch, um, fast over a short distance. And if it's black cotton, how how are they struggling? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean. Unfortunately, no one knows what, what happens. I mean, the, the movements of wildlife in the rainy season in the Kafui, it, it's, it's a complete unknown and it's a fascination. In fact, it's a fascination for me and it's one of the driving forces that, that made me want to go and study uh, conservation biology and ecology at university, specifically the Kafui context, because no one knows what happens for eight, nine months of the year. And then we rock up in the few months of the dry season and try and figure it all out again. But the elephant herds that are resident in the Musakesi Lagoon area, up to 200 ellies we get in the dry season on a daily basis. They just disappear, and we don't know where they go, um, and, and it's, it's fascinating. But yeah, the predators themselves, God knows how they, how they, how they get through it, but they, but they do somehow. I think they seek higher ground probably, but uh, uh, yeah, who knows? Well, that's difficult because you're in a riverine area there as well, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, not, it's not easy to get any answers, um, both physically and, and through science and even, even applying science to it. And uh, it's tough, you know, and maybe a load of camera traps would be helpful, but um, who, who's going to go and check them with a canoe maybe or something or a helicopter? <laughs> <laughs> the guys in camp, uh, I know you're rebuilding. Have the guys in camp um, seen anything lately? Yeah, they, um, a big, big male leopard, one of our resident leopards, was, is, was in the kitchen area um, a few nights ago. Um, and they saw him as they were, the guys were heading to, to go and eat um, from the kitchen, uh, pumped into him. That's not an uncommon thing to happen in the dry season, but I don't think they were expecting it in, uh, in the peak of the rains. But the lions are vocal. Um, and, you know, of course, the Kafui, northern Kafui is a very, very wet area. You know, you get 12 to 1400 mils of rain in a few months. And as a consequence, the foliage is very thick this time of year, very unlike the dry season that people see the rest of the year when they come and visit the Kafu. And as such, even if the lion's roaring 100 meters away, to physically see the thing is, is not so easy. But it's all very much there. But the bird life is, is fantastic. Of course, a lot of the migratory is heading back to, uh, back to Europe. Literally now I can hear the um, uh, today I was hearing the, uh, the European bee eaters and, and blue cheeks, etc. heading back north. So um, still lots going on. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think we'll leave there probably Tyrone thanks for that good stuff yeah yeah cheers so plenty to look forward to in Zambia with the coming of the dry season and Tyrone should be back with us next month for now though we leave Africa and cross the ocean to India right in the heart of the country is Jahan hi Steve so this is Jahan here from uh, Shergar Tented Camp at Kanha Tiger Reserve 
So Shergar is a small uh, safari lodge on the edge of Kanha Tiger Reserve, which is uh, one of India's better known reserves in the heartland of Madhya Pradesh. Kanha is best known for its tiger population and also for a number of other species which are endemic to the area. And how long have you been there with the camp? Uh, so Steve, we've lived in Kanha for 20 years. Our camp's been functioning for the last 17 years. We built the camp in 2003 and we're on the southern gate called Mukki. There's a western gate called Kisli and there's also a northern gate called Sari. So yeah, we're on the southern side. The Mukki gate adjoins the Mukki zone. So that's where we are. That's great. And can you tell me what the what sort of situation the park's in at the moment in terms of uh, the, where you are in the season? Yeah. So the tourist season uh, runs from October after the monsoons in India have receded uh, through until the end of June, until the, until the monsoons uh, sort of reappear again. So at the moment, we are probably two thirds of the way through the season. And sort of just to tell you a little bit about the climatic aspect of the season. So we start with the post-monsoon months of uh, October and November, uh, go into the winter months of uh, December, Jan, part Feb. We are just coming into spring where we are seeing uh, a lot of flowering happen. And uh, the predominant tree species in Kanha is sal and bamboo. Uh, and we are seeing or we will be seeing the sal come into new leaves within the next month or six weeks. But at the moment, the park is closed. Yes. From a tourist point of view, the park is closed. Uh, India is under lockdown. The parks have been closed since the 20th of March. We all had visitors. We all had uh, people wanting to see the wildlife of Kana. But a lot of people had to be evacuated at short notice. And all the lodges, all the camps uh, are empty. Uh, And it's a very worrying scenario because, as you know, tourism employs certainly a few thousand families, if not more. And if we are looking at an extended period of lockdown or an extended period of uh, low season because of the fallout of the coronavirus, uh, we will be looking at a number of jobs lost. And what that means is that people who are employed directly or indirectly by tourism will have to look for alternative avenues of uh, employment, alternative avenues of uh, remuneration. And we are worried that they, out of necessity, might have to go collecting firewood and other stuff from the forests, which is, of course, illegal and we would like to avoid. The shutting down of the tourism season because of this virus has not only become a loss of business, but it's also become a large conservation issue for us. So we are doing whatever we can. All of us sort of, we formed a collective and we are doing everything we can to ensure that everybody employed in tourism, the guides, the drivers, the naturalists, uh, we secure their livelihood in some ways yeah that's excellent news i mean let's hope it doesn't go on too long for sure because the the strain then becomes greater of course yeah the strain becomes greater and these people in the past have always lived within or just on the edge of the forest so no one knows the forest better than them when they work with us they are our eyes and ears on the ground they are the people who know the best way of locating the animals they are the people with the with the field skills and you want these people to be positively employed, protecting the animals. Absolutely. And uh, if in terms of tiger sightings or in terms of sort of what ha- what's happened through the year, we've had a very interesting year in Kanha where we've sort of been tracking the life story of certain tigers. 
the the tigers who are better known and the tigers who are present in the tourism zones they are well known tigers they are habituated to the cars to the jeeps we have you know lots of photographs of them we have ways of identifying them pretty easily because they all have a particular behavioral trait or a particular mark on the body which is easy to help us identify them so we've got a few tigers whose sort of life story we everybody sort of follow follows just by way of the fact that we see them regularly and the interesting thing that we've noted in the last certainly since the beginning of the season or maybe even longer is that in kanha in particular we have an excess of the male in the tiger population so there's an excess of males in the population presumably they know the yeah. genetic makeup of the tigers through conservation initiatives um is it possible to translocate or bring in other additional females from other areas yes uh, they might do that but of course they want to try to let the sort of gender ratio or the balance work itself out naturally but when there is an excess of males especially uh what happens is that there isn't any single male who attains dominance they're all trying to vie for the for the females to mate with and the cubs are at uh, special risk because males who haven't sired cubs will then kill those cubs so what we are seeing is we are seeing the population ratio should be one male to three females at the moment we are seeing a ratio of about one is to one and that means that not only are the males there's a lot of infighting between males but it also means that the the females are not secure and their cubs are not secure so it's not a good sign for few, for the next uh, 5 or 7 years and well we just mentioned about um, initiatives are they setting plans in place for um, translocations uh not at the moment because this is a fairly recent phenomenon we've been seeing this in the last 2 or 3 years and it's kind of baffling everybody as to why it's happening because we've always been told that the ratio should be 1 is to 3 uh but possibly if this carries on for longer there will have to be uh i'm not sure if it'll be relocation or what uh but it also might be that uh just by way of the fact that the males will sort of keep fighting they push the other male out and uh males kill each other and the population balance may come back to what it's supposed to be yeah so w- you've got to leave it be and see what happens over the next coming year season yeah. or two so you've got to leave it be for a while because i mean all these things which happen they have a sort of um, a certain amount of time before which they rectify themselves so interfering or you know intervening too soon is never a good idea especially when you're talking of relocations translocations tranquilizing of big cats and all that sort of, because then there are other risks associated to the survival of the animal yeah absolutely um one of the things i've just thought of is whether they're actually being pushed therefore some of the males are actually being pushed out into the buffer zones more Yeah so we all our camps are in the buffer zones and we are seeing an increased number of episodes where we have tigers coming out also taking cattle and when that happens then the villagers uh, feel threatened uh, and there are the conservation issues happening so yes we've definitely seen that in the last 3 or 4 years where the the big cats are coming out more and more uh, we see them a lot more we see signs of them we see pug marks or yeah. we uh they're being cited as well and uh yes cattle lifting and other sorts of problems it's of course being tracked and it's being studied and it, it these these parks are closed areas but tigers do breed and you have uh you don't we don't have space you know tigers are born yeah but we don't have yeah. more space to accommodate for those tigers so there is always certain rate of mortality 
in other words, the um, the park is sustaining an almost maximal number of tigers within the population. Yeah. Then. Yeah. The parks are saturated. And so the tigers that are born have to go somewhere and they don't have a place to go to. There is no extra space being created. So either it's by infighting or the weaker tigers getting killed by the stronger tigers or some process has to play itself out to ensure that the population does not grow. Because if we say that the population is at its saturated peak and we say that the population is sort of healthy, then uh, that's just the way things are going to happen. No, I totally understand. Can you tell me of any special sightings this year that you've had or any circumstances or happenings between tigers yeah, or yeah, any other wildlife? Yeah, 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 sure. So it's, I mean, been mainly centered around tigers. Uh, and as I was saying, we've had a number of males in the park and we all we name these tigers because we know them fairly well. And the names are either indicative of the areas from which they come or a particular pattern. So, for example, we had a tiger called Kingfisher because he had a, a mark which looked very much like a kingfisher on one of his cheeks. So the park identifies its tigers by a numbering system. So we've got tigers called, you know, T20, T25, T30, T32, T33. So we've got, as I was saying, we've got five or six males around the Mookie area. They're T30, T50, T46, and T24, these four dominant males, all of whom are sort of in the age range of five to ten years. All are sort of pretty at their prime. And we've had a number of instances through the month of January where we had two of them squaring off with each other in full view of, you know, a number of jeeps. Uh, and that whole uh, confrontation between, in this case, I'm T30, who's called Umar Pani male. He's one of the, he's probably the biggest male in Kana. He's a nine or 10 year old tiger, chunky guy, pretty massive, uh, squaring off with a tiger called T24, who's slightly younger, uh, also called Jamun Tola male. He comes from the area called Jamun Tola. And over a period of two or three days, they were both vying for this female who, actually has cubs but they were both sort of vying for her and uh, they were both following her around and every time they'd come within you know a certain distance they'd square off on their hind legs swiping at each other you know punching in the air and all this happened over the first week of january day after day and uh, uh, we'd go back in the park the next morning after an afternoon sighting and you'd see you know a certain area with Pug marks of three tigers, the female and two males. You'd see pools of blood where they'd sort of bitten each other, and uh, you know, there were signs of all that on the ground. And we did think that one of those fights was going to end in a fatal encounter for one of the tigers, but that did not happen. Both of them are still well. T30 and T24 are still well. They still have a, they have adjoining territories, so they still have a common boundary. And we still hear a lot of uh, vocalization of uh, aggressiveness. But since maybe the last month and a half, we haven't seen any encounters. We've seen encounters between other males, between T30 and another male called T50. But uh, sort of the, the, the almost fatal behavior, that um, uh, conflict that we were seeing between T30 and T24 sort of has seemed to have died down. They've, they've resolved both it. accepted each other's presence. Well, I don't know if they've resolved it for the moment. They kind of have accepted each other's presence. Maybe they just know that they're, they're both quite powerful they, maybe they just avoid each other. They both have a fairly large territory, so uh, it's not a question of fighting for kills. You know, food is plentiful. They both were fighting for the rights to mate with this female, uh, and that seems to have resolved itself. But I'm sure over the next few months, we are going to see one or two males 
shifting out or being quite seriously injured. Of course, now we have, uh, you know, all the equipment to record and we also have all the equipment to identify tigers through, through camera traps and through photographs. Uh, you can identify the stripe markings, the stripe pattern on the tiger and you know exactly where he is. There are jeeps uh, in, on a daily basis. Everybody's seeing tigers. Everybody's photographing them. And with social media, we all share that data and we know where the tigers are. We know who's where. We know their movements. And you can sort of draw a whole story about what they've been doing for the last six months almost. Wow. Useful social media then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have all these uh, groups where all the guides pull in all their information on all their sightings, uh, and you can you can literally track uh, you know track their movements on a daily basis when they make a kill and when they are patrolling and when they are vocalizing for a female and when they are vocalizing in an aggressive manner because there's another male around, and yeah, you you see the whole pattern of events from day to day. Really interesting. That's been great, Jahan. Tracking, Thanks very yeah. much. You're welcome, Steve. I hope the parts can reopen soon, but I fear with the monsoons coming in June, it may be next October before Jahan and his guides are back inside Kana to pick up on the Tiger Diaries. On the opposite side of the world to India, let's now talk with Guiliano in the Pantanal of Brazil. Hello Steve, nice to talk to you. Hi. Uh, here is Giuliano Bernardon, and let me introduce to, to our audience. So, I am a Brazilian guide. I have been working as a guide for more than 20 years, uh, specialized in bird watching and, and nature photography. And over this time, I have been very fortunate to get to know uh, most of Brazil. And Brazil is such a huge and diverse country. We have so many different types of habitats and landscapes. I think part of my love for, for, for nature comes from my childhood. I was raised in a small farm in central Brazil. So, you know, I used to play around, of course, and sometimes I would be on myself and encounter a wild animal. And I think those moments were, were very uh, important for me. They, they left a, um, a deep impression on, on my person, you know. This is what I call the magic encounters. When you come across a, a wild animal and for a few seconds or for some time this animal will not run away from you you know it it's a special connection that happens with nature so I'm very fortunate to be able to share this type of experience with other people from around the world and you've settled now in the Pantanal that's right Steve um, I am talking to you from the Pantanal and just to explain again a bit more, so years ago I started my own tour company and more recently my wife and I decided to have our own lodge. So we set a lodge in the Pantanal, Aymara Lodge. We have been working on this for one year already and that's where I'm talking to you from. That's great. And this lodge is in, uh, as I understand it, it's in Woodland, which is rather unusual for the Pantanal. That's right. Uh, for those that don't know the Pantanal, the Pantanal is the biggest wetlands in the world. It's a floodplain in central Brazil. And the landscape is mostly comprised by open grasslands, uh, woodlands, and, and rivers and marshlands. Uh, and while most of the lodges in the Pantanal are cattle ranches that have been converted to, to take guests, they are built in the open lands, 
we have set our camp in the woodlands, right in the middle of the forest, right next to a, a small river, which makes the setting very special because we are right in the animal's habitat, you know, so we see mammals and birds all the time here. We have different species of monkeys that, that move on the trees over the cabins every day, and several species of mammals and birds of all kinds. And in the river, we see lots of caiman and capybara, which is the biggest rodent in the world. And we also have giant otters, the, gi the biggest otters in the world. Uh, so it's a, it's a very special place. You see, yeah, it sounds really idyllic. Well, you were talking about the wetlands, but I understand that the rains uh, haven't really come to the higher ground this year. So you're somewhat drier down there at the moment than you would normally expect. Well, that's true, unfortunately. This should be uh, the peak of the wet season. So we have basically the rainy season and the dry season. Uh, we don't have four seasons as, as in the Northern Hemisphere, for example, in a way. It, because, uh, so we have uh, the rains. And when we speak of the rainy season, it's not that it rains a lot here. It, it rains a lot in the borders of the Pantanal, in the higher lands around here. And of course, we have more rain than, than usual, but not too much. But the water levels will go up considerably. Well, that's good, that's good and to And in know. the dry season, it will not rain for sometimes two months in a row. It gets very dry. But anyhow, uh, this year the floods haven't been so high, so strong as usual, which is a bit concerning because we are afraid that if we don't have a, a, a normal flood, in the dry season, a lot of the ponds will dry out completely, and that could be catastrophic for some animals. For some of the wildlife, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk some more about the wildlife, and I know that you've got camera traps around, and you've been having some quite interesting sightings from the camera traps. Well, the, the one thing I love most about the Pantanal is the richness of wildlife here. It, it's like the wildlife haven in South America. And here in our property, we are using camera traps. We set them on different locations in the woods. And we are using these cameras to have a better assessment of what species of animals we have here and a, a better idea of their behavior. So we have these cameras on, on sides of ponds, on the trails, and in the woods. And we are learning a, a lot about these animals um, here. You know, so we, we are trying to understand uh, the territory of some of the animals and what time of the day we are more likely to find them in a certain location and things like that. You were talking to me before we started recording about uh, giant armadillos. Oh yes, that's true. Uh, that, that was very exciting the first time we caught a giant armadillo on the camera because that's definitely one of the rarest animals in South America. In, my, in all these years I have been traveling around Brazil, I only saw it once, but I know people that were born and raised here in the Pantanal and lived here their entire lives and never saw one. So it's very special and we actually uh, caught videos and photographs of these giant armadillo more than one time, which means it has a territory around here, 
maybe we can figure out a way of, of finding him and getting closer to him. Of course, it's very difficult, uh, especially for such a ghost like this animal. They like to move very early in the morning, like 2 or 3 in the morning. It's time of the, the day when nobody's out there walking around. Fairly secretive then. Yeah, but we have had, uh, of course, many other uh, very interesting uh, records. For example, um, ocelots. We, we are realizing that we have several individuals of ocelots. You know, it's a beautiful cat, small cat. Yes, yeah. Several, several individuals living here. No, I've been lucky enough to see them. Yeah. And um, we have the ocelots and, and the many other animals, of course. And, and we even caught puma and jaguar on these camera traps. And let me tell you a, an interesting story about that. About a month ago, uh, we had a, a family here as guests. And this, this couple with the two little boys went walking on the trail. And next day, I went there to, to take the, the SD card from the camera and look at the, at the videos. And what is funny is that half hour before this family walked in front of the trip of the, of the camera, a puma walked in front of the camera going towards these people. So I guess they, the puma probably got very close to them and heard the people coming and decided to hide on the side of the trail. It just shows how, you know, sometimes the animals are right there and you don't see them, you know. So it takes, of course, a bit of luck to, to have a, a nice encounter with such an animal. It takes a little bit of silence as well when you're out uh, walking <laughs> on these trails too. That's true, that's true. Maybe if the kids were quiet, they, they would have the luck to to see this beautiful animal on the trail. It's a, it's a big male puma that walks around here. Uh, we, have, we have photographs of, of him all over the property here. <laughs> and can you tell me some more of the uh, interesting sightings you've had? I'm thinking of the tapirs. Right, yeah, I have a, an interesting story about the tapir. Uh, as the entire world, we, we're kind of uh, in lockdown here in the Pantanal. I mean, this is idyllic lockdown because we are in a big property you know we can walk around and we can see the wildlife so uh, I have two kids two boys and they are just loving it you know <laughs> <laughs> it's like big vacation they ever they always dreamed for um, so I went biking with my oldest son uh, the other day and as we were riding our bicycles we came across a taper that was was sitting right next to the to the road it was it was grazing was eating some leaves there and it was funny that we pretended we didn't see the taper and we just kept going and passed by it and literally it was like three meters from the road and the taper pretended to not see us and stood there as as nothing was happening it was so funny it was so interesting because well that's what makes the Pantanal so special uh, a lot of times, the animals here are not afraid of human beings, and that's uh, that's very special. It means that the encounters that you have are just that much more memorable. That's true. And, and for example, the monkeys. Um, 
when it was very hot and, and dry uh, last year, some of the capuchin monkeys were drinking water from the sp swimming pool. <laughs> and, and we were sitting on the other side of the swimming pool, chatting and, and, and just hanging around there. And, and the, these monkeys were ignoring us. Or another time, they, an, a, uh, a tree was, was, had fruits right next to the compound here. And we could get very close to the monkeys. And they were just there picking their fruits, their, their loved fruits. And they, they couldn't care less about us. It's very nice. That's a really uh, special situation to have like that with the wildlife. Yes, it is. Uh, can we talk a little bit more about jaguars? Right. Because that is the iconic species of the Pantanal. Well, that's true. I mean, uh, jaguars are the third biggest cat in the world, only be below lions and tigers. And the Pantanal is where the jaguars are most abundant, although they, they live all over the Amazon and other rainforests of South America. Um, but definitely here, the Pantanal is the best area to see a jaguar. And, you know, we organize certain expeditions, as you know well, Steve, that, I mean, the chances of finding a jaguar are, are really good. Yes. And, and they're such amazing animals, of course. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have seen jaguars in my life. Luckily, I have seen many. But every time I see one is, is very special. You know, they, they're such powerful animals that, I mean, they, they really touch our souls. That's, that's my feeling about it. And of course, uh, I have never seen uh, a jaguar here in the property, but we have caught them on, on camera with these trail cameras uh, quite a few times. Yeah. But what is funny is that uh, a little while ago, uh, one of our employees was working uh, on the road fixing some potholes we had on the access road. And as he was working, he, he decided to look back on the road behind him, and there was a jaguar, a big jaguar, walking on the road, road coming towards him. It was not stalking on him, of course. It was just walking, you know, it was just passing by. Uh, but, but this man, he got really terrified, as, as anyone. And, and jaguars, ha jaguars have the power of bringing, this, bringing up the survival instinct in human beings, you know, a, an instinct that a lot of, of us have never felt. So luckily this man had his motorbike there with him, so he jumped in the motorbike and ran away from the Jaguar. The next day he would not come by himself again, so now... I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, now all the employees, they, when they have something to do, you know, away from the lodge, they go in two or three people. But that, that's not a really a big danger for a human being. I mean, uh, jaguars don't hunt people. Otherwise, we would have a lot of attacks uh, uh, every year, and that's not the case. No, of course, of course. I think one of the things that comes from this listening to you is just the sheer diversity of wildlife that you do have there. Um, we were saying just before we started recording, you had macaws flying over as well, and you had the coates around. Um, I think Brazil has immense potential as a wildlife destination, and, and that potential is not really being met just yet. I, I agree with you. I think the potential for ecotourism in Brazil uh, is huge, and we have only scratched the surface. Um, there is a lot more to be done. Uh, 
there is a lot more to be developed in a good way, you know. I mean, it's such a huge country. So, of course, we, we have space for a lot more tourists coming, you know, and, and it can be done in a, in a good way, in a respectful, respectful way for the environment. Yeah, I think that I think that's the most important way that tourism, sustainable tourism, should um, develop within Brazil is to be responsible to its environment and the wildlife and also the local peoples. Yes, well, I'll tell you, uh, Brazil has good environmental laws, and for example, for a business like mine, you know, we have to obey a lot of regulations uh, to be operating here which is a good thing, you know, it, it ensures that companies uh, will be respectful for nature. In, and I think there are so many other businesses that are harmful to nature, you know, so ecotourism is a win-win situation, you know, the whole time. It employs a lot of people, it, it spends money in the local communities, you know, so it helps the local communities. And of course, it preserves nature. So uh, what else can you ask for? It, it, it's perfect. And I hope tourism will, will develop more and more in Brazil over the years. Of course, we are living uh, strange times right now. And not, this is not good for tourism businesses. <laughs> for all of but us. I'm sure it, 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 <laughs> yes. But it, it will pass, of course, yeah. you know. Certainly. And so we're here doing our job, you know, protecting this place and and waiting for people to come after this wave. <laughs> it's been great talking with you, Guiliano. Thanks very much for that. It's been a great insight into um, some of the nature in Brazil. And I hope you can join us next month and tell us perhaps you're then operating, but um, at least you'll be uh, catching some sightings of more wildlife, that's for sure. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Steve. Yeah, I hope, I hope to be with you again next month and I will keep you updated about our and wildlife sightings here. That's great. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. I think you'll agree that was a fascinating introduction to some of the more recent events in key areas of the world for wildlife. I hope you've enjoyed it and we will bring you further updates from around the world next month. If you enjoyed our podcast so far, do subscribe and share with friends interested in wildlife and wildness. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Wildlife and wildness is at all protected. <laughs>